lane five for Great Britain. The big hope, the big, big hope for gold today. Anna Watkins and Kathleen Granger. Granger has won silvers at the last three Olympics, so a gold in London would really crown her career in style. And the British are leading from Australia as expected, with Crow and Prattley in second place. One thing is on her mind, and that is to win the first gold of her glittering career. To the halfway point of the race. They want to try and get a little bit more clear water between themselves and the Australians if they can do the Great Britain pairing. But what is the destiny today for Anna Watkins and Catherine Granger? They've both been tremendously focused on the job in hand all week. They're retaining the initiative and the advantage that they've had throughout the race. They may have just pushed ahead a little further now. 1500 meter mark now and Great Britain touched it in five minutes ten seconds. Crow and Prattley the two and a half seconds down. Three silvers, wonderful for the collection, for the cabinet. There is there going to be a goal to go alongside it here for Catherine Granger. She is almost touching gold. She is so, so close to the best moment of her sporting career. The finishing line beckons for Watkins and Granger. The crowd is roaring them home. Fabulous scenes here at Eton Dornay. And this is going to be the most treasured moment of the career of Catherine Granger. Gold for Great Britain, silver for Crow and Prattley of Australia. The crowd here at Fever Pitch. Welcome to The Rose Show. We're your hosts, Lawrence Britton and Jake Green. And in this podcast, we're going to go into everything related to sport and performance. And we're also going to talk a little bit about rowing. In South Africa. It brings people together, it breaks down barriers. My passion winning to be the best. Being the best is something we strive for. Sacrifice, crucial role in South Africa. Compassion. Great. Passion. Fiction. Gold. Ultimate goal. Glory. Relentless training. Pain. Pain. <laughs> Hello, ladies and gents, and welcome to another awesome episode of The Rose Show. As always, it's your host, Lawrence Britton and Jake Green. And today we are bringing you the second part of Catherine Granger's episode. And uh, this, this part of the, the episode, we, we go into probably her, you know, her, her most resounding success in her career amongst all her medals. And this was the gold in London. And, you know, out of all the athletes we've spoken to, I think she's done the best job of you know, just speaking about that winning that gold and, and the, what that was like and the feeling of standing on the podium after so much work because she really did, you know, go through a lot of ups and downs to get to the top, eh? Yeah, so if you're a first-time listener, this is part two again and go back. We really suggest you go back and listen to part one because that's the first half of her journey, her first three silver Olympic medals. And then as Jake said, this uh, London Olympic Games where she gets her first gold is honestly one of the best performances and the best uh, conversation we've had about a gold medal uh, on our show for sure. Like uh, having built up, having gone through so many uh, Olympic Games and always getting that silver and then finally coming away with the gold medal was unbelievable. And the way she put it into words was really special. So it uh, was such an awesome second uh, half of the interview we go into the reasons that she carried on into the Rio Olympic Games and, and why she, she wanted to 
carry on and and keep that performance going and you know still coming away with another yeah. olympic medal so as we said in in part one she's the most decorated uh british uh, sportswoman with the olympic games and i mean what a phenomenal athlete yeah and i think what i really liked about her talking about uh continuing on to 2016 it was it was a very you know honest discussion around like the psychological element of the sport and it was really good to hear her just speak about why she wanted to come back because, I mean, a lot of people listening out there, that's a huge, hugely risky move after winning your gold medal and you've got such a great legacy. And coming back, you know, that was a huge task for her. But and it was, like a, it was like a personal battle yeah, as it was well a because personal she got battle. a lot of people telling her that coming it back was, was a mistake. Yeah, it was a mistake. she didn't want to leave anything else on the table and she wasn't done with rowing. So coming back was uh, her own decision, which I think is seriously brave, but also just yeah, shows the th- quality of athlete she is. Yeah, and I think that part of the episode maybe is the most telling sign of why she was so successful across her, her, her whole career and what makes her such the war- what makes her the warrior she was throughout her, her own career, which is awesome. And on top of that, we had a fantastic discussion around her quickfire questions, probably one of the better uh, rounds of quickfire that we've yeah, had. Yeah, our quickfire questions always bring out the best the best answers and the best of our guests on the show. So we had a lot of fun uh, with these with these answers and uh, really, really, really awesome. So I think you guys will, will really enjoy that part of the episode. Um, before we get going, just a quick housekeeping. Thanks so much to all our Patreons. You guys are, guys and girls are the best. Absolute heroes and you keep the show going and you keep uh, adding value and allowing us to keep putting out this good content so if you guys are are on the regular feed and you're listening to this uh the patrons have had this episode for a few weeks before you and they get a whole lot of extra features and 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 episodes ahead of schedule so if you want more row show if you want more rowing news ahead of time you want more access to our data that we do for the regatta madness episodes like that then uh, head over to our patreon account yeah and besides that if you you know you can also support us through our social media channels um it's always good building a bit of um you know discussion on there uh, you know it helps us with the algorithm gets our our brand out there and you guys are really you know lawrence and i we run this independently so this is you know a podcast that we you know developed amongst ourselves and you guys are really are brand ambassadors out there so you know, go share us around on Instagram, engage with us on Twitter, send us an email, th- let us know what you think of the show. Yeah, just tell a friend about us if you, yeah, help us grow a little bit more. And uh, the last thing also is me and Jake recorded this episode uh, whilst we were in some quarantine. We had some COVID in our team a few, I think it was about two months ago that we recorded this episode and we were not in the same place. So some of the audio is a little scratchy, but I think it's easily forgivable when the, the quality of the content coming through is at this kind of level. So I think uh, that's all, eh, Jake? Yeah, that's all. Um, enjoy the episode. Enjoy the show. I want to chat about, you know, the, the double combination with Anna Watkins because, I mean, like you just said that the first time you guys got together, it was it was really very fast. And you, you can see that. I mean, you guys were unbeaten, the two of you, um, which is amazing. And I'm, I'm interested, you know, you, you come away world champions in 2010 and you definitely, you know, put yourself... Um, almost in a league of your own because you how much you guys won 2010. And then going into London knowing that it's your home Olympics, I mean, there must have been an immense amount of pressure, but the two of you must have been so confident with the, your ability to to go to London and deliver. So I'm, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on you know, going into the London Olympics and just 
the the com this, this the combination and the confidence that the two of you had, knowing that you two were such a incredible threat. Yeah, and again, you know, it, it is the dream scenario if you're in sport and you are in a. Uh, I mean, we were in a partnership, obviously, but if you're in any sort of team where you have, um, it's a. I suppose it's a combination of factors. We, like I said, the first time we got in a boat, we just pushed off the landing stage. We were training in Portugal, and we took only about ten or fifteen strokes, and we both stopped. And I and I was stroking. I turned around, and I was like. That feels good, and Anna was like, "I know that was I love that." I remember our coach driving up in the launch and being like, "Get on with the session, you know, you just started." But we were like, "No, no, no, you don't understand this." You know, there was something so special about within ten strokes, just going, "Oh, this feels good." And we were, you know, we were physically really well matched. We were technically very well matched. Uh, we had the same ethos of, you know, racing and what we wanted to achieve and. Uh, we were both excited about the potential, and it always felt like this boat, in a in a wonderful way, it, it almost came less about the two of us. It, the, the boat sort of took, took on the persona itself, and we were always kind of like, always felt we were we had to do the best for the boat. The boat, you know, we felt like the boat could win, the boat could be brilliant, and we were just two parts of it. But if you know, we were delivering, you know, that boat could be the fastest boat in the world, and um. We we did. We had, you know, like I said, a brilliant, brilliant 2010 where we learned so much together. Uh, 2011, um, obviously we were qualifying for the Games. Anna was actually really quite ill at the World Championships and we, we still managed to win the title. And that gives a lot of confidence again that, you know, things don't need to be perfect and we can still find a way to deliver the result. And then the 2012 season, uh, you know, like I said, we, we won everything we did and we were having... With some fabulous opposition in that year, with mm. brilliant, brilliant Australian Australian crews, they kept swapping their the crews around, but the Australian crew were, you know, out to beat us all the time. And um, again, this this a real, they were kind of the real threat to us. Uh, and then as, as London came closer, it, I mean, we didn't we didn't for one second take for granted the opportunity we'd been given. It was. You know, we were in the best boat we could be in. We were kind of the peak of our abilities and we had home games on its way. And the biggest the biggest challenge probably for us was there's genuinely no way you can really prepare for that moment um, in front of a sort of home crowd and, and that home expectation. We were one of the, you know, we were the favourite in our event. Um, the, one of the big British newspapers had put out a sort of top 20 athletes to watch in order and um and we were sort of number one of kind of these and, and rowing you know rowing has got a good standing in Britain but you know there was some of the you know we had huge names in athletics in Mo Farah and, and Jess Ennis who were going to go on and become Olympic champions in their own right um, but we were still sort of you know named as the number one to watch and so we were a bit of a talking point and people were aware of us and um, I remember going to walking down the street and bumping into a complete stranger who was the first person who said to me, you know, I know what you'll be doing on the 3rd of August uh, next year. And this was like a year out when the, the dates had been announced, but I hadn't even heard them. And the stranger knew the date of my Olympic final. And, and so suddenly you felt this is a huge talking point. This is a huge moment of interest. The public, the nation is expecting and the nation is excited and the nation wants. And um, at that point, there'd been a big thing in sort of the media from my results of, you know, 
they obviously try and tell a lot of different athlete stories and, and there's so many to tell. They all get mixed in together. And my sort of specific story and according to the media was sort of, here's a girl that's won three Olympic silver. Could she finally deliver the gold? And this was a sort of big, the fairy tale ending if it was possible. Um, so we, we sort of were aware of the interest, but we still had no idea of the scale of it until afterwards, thankfully. Um, but for us, it was still about, you know, then the day, it's still a 2,000 metre course, six lane race on a lake that we know, you know, yes, we want to use that, that pressure. We want to use that support. We want to use the kind of expectations, but we want to limit it. We want to make sure it, we use it enough that it fuels us. But at the end of the day, it doesn't take away our focus on, you know, our, our the length we need to grow and the rhythm we need to have and the real basics. Getting the, so it came back yet again to getting the basics right. So, you know, we knew over and over again in those crazy moments when emotions threaten to take over and you slightly lose your mind, what is it we need to focus on? So we both between us had like two or three technical things. Was was When it all got crazy, that's what we need to think about. So we sat on the start line just thinking about those two things each that we needed to get right. I mean, you know, Rowan's like, there's a t- 1,010 things you need to try and get right. But we had to distill it down to when your mind is racing, your heart's pounding and the adrenaline's low, like flooding through your body and 30,000 people are cheering, then what's the one or two things that will keep me focused and keep keep my mind clear? Um, and I think at the start line, it was, it was genuinely bringing it down to the first stroke. I remember just thinking, you know, and the, the greatest thing about a rowing race is the only thing you impact on is the very first stroke. And almost from then, you then respond to, you know, whatever you're doing, whatever needs to be done, whatever comes your way. But the first stroke is the one thing you can control and the only thing you need to worry about. And really being able to keep a very, very clear, narrow, controlled focus on what we needed to so that the emotion didn't take over and the, the moment didn't sort of overwhelm us. And you know, as soon as the race was finished and we'd won it, then, you know, you throw everything off and just love the moment and love the minute. But to get to that, it was never about thinking about the finish line. It was never thinking about what if we won it? What would this mean? It was just about back to that process, process. How do we, how do, we do this? What do we need to focus on to get it right, to deliver it? And then, I mean, and then you, you, do, you do deliver it and you, you come away with the, with the Olympic gold and on on the, the home the home water and it must have been really amazing and like you say you were focused on the on the on the performance as you come down the track but this is a race where you know other other Olympic race of yours have been so close so tight uh, towards the finish line whereas this was now you're starting to especially in the last like 100 150 meters maybe did it creep in did you like actually notice how big the crowd was how that you actually were going to do it or or, or were you just still really focused on executing the race all the way to the line uh we were we were probably different so Anne and I were slightly we've talked about it obviously we're a bit different in that you know Anna's in the bio seat so you know part of her role is to be very aware of what's going on around us and um you know she's she's a brilliant scientist brilliant mathematician she's very very analytical um so you know she was by halfway you know she's summing up the gap we had to the opposition the kind of how we were feeling how efficient the boat was moving how, you know, how many gears we'd left to run. And she kind of pushed us all up in a split second. And, and she said, I remember thinking, you know, we, we, we can win, we'll win, we will win, win this race. We'll, we've got what it takes. It's fine. But she didn't process it as we can win the Olympic Games. You know, she was just on the level of, yeah, yeah this we've race. got what we need to, to win this race. 
yeah, this race, we know we can win it because of experience, because we've done it before. We know how to do this. Um, and then, so when we crossed the line, she almost took a few minutes, not minutes, but a few moments to think, yeah, we've won it. And then to sort of realise, oh my God, we've won the Olympic Games. And, you know, this sort of delayed, for her, it was a delayed reaction of, wow, that's what we've just done. And I think for me, um, I was very conscious of, uh, obviously by that point in my career, 12 years in, um, what that Olympic final meant. And I, the one thing I was a little wary of was I don't know how I'm going to cope if and when it looks like it's going to happen. Um, and I don't want to suddenly mid-race try test that theory of how it's going to feel. So I really, really, really like almost like, you know, kind of ironclad my thought process and would not let myself think this is going to be okay. Um, so I remember, you know, again, you know, I knew where the opposition, I knew where we were, we were in the position I wanted to be, but didn't, didn't let my mind go one step beyond that. Didn't think about, oh my God, you know, we're only 20 meters away. We're going to do this. Didn't even, didn't let it go near there. Um, I was aware of the crowd only because it is, I mean, to date, the loudest crowd I have ever heard in my life. And I, I mean, it was deafening and, you know, Anna, you know how close the double sits. So Anna was behind me. She was shouting at the top of her voice. I could, I could feel her voice, but I couldn't hear the words because the crowd, you know, was even louder. And you know, it, it was, it was utterly incredible on every level. You know, winning in front of a crowd like that, which it wasn't just the noise of the crowd; it was the passion of the crowd. There was a real kind of, real emotional noise, and the whole thing was was gonna could risk being overwhelming and and i mean you guys know as well the last thing you want is like start you know i don't know anything going wrong in the last few seconds yeah, of your your there's a, there's a lot could happen in those, those last moments yeah. so i didn't let myself until we crossed the line and i couldn't even hear the beep of the the final because <laughs> the crowd was too loud for that so you know cross the bubble line and the there's actually the crowd changed from a kind of roar to a cheer and yes. that's what made me think we crossed the line and at that point, then you can let it all flood in, yeah. and then it was incredible. So yeah, I mean, I was oh, in that, I was, I was in that crowd. So it was, it was really, really cool to to watch that uh, that race live, and and yeah, it was definitely something special. The the crowds there, and then you know, watching the racing. So like, if you can go from you know 2008, maybe the the saddest or most disappointing silver medal ever to maybe the best gold medal ever, you know, the, you can just see it on your face on the podium. Uh, it's, it really must have made, you know, this is however many years you, you, you've been, uh, 12 years in, into the, the, or even more, uh, 16 years into the, into the sport and, uh, you get this gold medal and it's, I feel like watching it, it, it makes it worthwhile. It makes it, uh, all of those years and, you know, you've had the good results, but this is, is the ultimate result. Yeah, and it, I mean, you're talking about, we talk about that sort of classic heroes quest before. And, you know, I think sometimes, and especially, you know, talking to a lot of members of the public as well afterwards, it can be hard to relate to, you know, very big sporting events and, and sporting um, results. And, you know, especially talking to people who are competing at that level. But there's something very relatable and very human about about that journey we all go through and the highs and the lows. And I think, you know, for me, the length of time it had been, it had been 15, 16 years by the time London came across. 
you know, I had some great success and I'd had some real disappointments. I'd got close. But I think having been at so many games by then, I had such a, an appreciation and a, and a sort of love of what the Olympic Games stood for and what it meant and what, you know, being part of that family and being part of that environment. And then sort of to finally kind of then get the ultimate result and in front of a, a home crowd mm-hmm. when we had just so much support. And in, in this brilliant, brilliant, you know, combination, like I said, with Anna, it was, you know, every single element of it made it into the kind of ultimate fairy tale. And I, and I, you know, I did have people saying, if you ever win that result, are you worried that it might not live up to what you hope? You have been waiting so long, you know, <laughs> it could be ultimately, a, a, it, it could be a disappointment. It could be, you know, is that it? And, um, and I have to say, gosh, standing on that podium, you know, in London with, with the national anthem and with the crowd and the sun shining down on us and, you know, arm in arm with Anna, I was like, this is better than anything I've ever dreamt of. It, uh, honest to God was, and, and I, and I had dreamt of it, but it was still better than anything I could ever have imagined because of everything that fit into it. And I think, you know, sport ultimately is, you know, as hard physically as it is, as, as interesting tactically and, and as you know stressing technically it can be it's still an emotional thing it's still a mm. real heart and soul thing and so when you get those moments you just give in to that you give in to that you know the, the passion of it all and it's it will always be I mean it will always sit there in my sort of memory um, forever of just this unbelievable moment that God gives, makes every single blood sweat and tear day before that worth it yeah, yeah so I mean that's the best that's the best answer we've gotten to the feelings of winning Olympic gold. A lot of people are like, oh, I don't know. I don't know how to tell him that day is probably the best way. I mean, it's it honestly, and I, the thing about London though is, I mean, even though it's your home crowd, like from rowing, that's what that, that is the best regatta I've ever watched from rowing. From the, you mentioned the crowds. I've never seen a regatta where there are people Stacks from the two two kilometers. We're talking two k's here. There are people from the start all the way to the end, and you can hear it through the race. You can hear people cheering. Um, and we had a lightweight for that one gold in, in London, and yeah. they said they said that they were getting into a nail biting sprint at the end, and they could not hear a mat um, say, "Guys, we have to go now." They were just thankfully, you know, that instinctual push that they just knew that they had to do something. And they just said it was just so loud they couldn't they could not hear. So I mean, really London was a fantastic uh, I, game. Do you know it was in so many ways, but that South African four winning that race was did so much for our sport as well. It was just that was an incredible final and an incredible result. So I think you know, of course you are you know, you're sporting your own team and, and you know crowd support you know, whichever whichever people in the crowd are supporting whichever nationality but there are you know there's some moments and some events and some races that you feel doesn't matter what nationality there's some races mm. that you just support and I remember being in the my first um, back in Sydney and being in the crowd in, in that incredible Australian final in um, the track and field stadium when Cathy Freeman won her 400 metres and mm. you know we had brilliant we had brilliant British athletes in that crowd in the in the competition, but in that moment, you want Cathy Freeman to win, whichever nation you're from, because you know, there's some results you just think that is going to be incredible for everyone. For that, yeah. and I think you know, I think you're South African for winning in that year. There's so many, there's so many moments you just think 
that is just a again a, a sort of a moment in time of the right victory. Yeah, it's yeah. Uh, it's such a magic part of sport. I think that's and like that what you're talking about there. That's what makes sport so exciting to watch, and and it always brings you know like people together and. There's just something very special about sport, and I think that's probably the number one uh, element that you're speaking about there. But we are uh, looking at the time. We've got to uh, fit everything in, so we've got to move on. And my question is, how? what made you come back for the 2016 Olympics? Like, Because uh, um, you take the two years off uh, after, after 2012, and then suddenly you, 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 you're back in the, in the sport, and you, you're back on the, the podium. And, and what... Um, yeah, what brought you back into into rowing in 2015? <laughs> it's a good question. Um, yeah, I think so. I I obviously finished London, finished 2012, and a massive high. Um, and uh, like most of my rowing partners, Anna retired at that point. And uh, you know, she, she was married. She went she went off and had a family. And it was really hard. It was really hard to. I mean, it was hard to come down from that point anyway. And then it was hard to imagine whatever could follow that. And so I definitely, I never retired. And a lot of people talk about retiring in 2012. I never retired. I never said I was retired. I always struggled with the word retirement. It felt too final. <laughs> and um, I think I still haven't officially retired now, but <laughs> but um, I still struggled to even write the retirement letter that we're supposed to write. Um, so I took time off. And I was doing a PhD at the time and I wanted to go back and finish that because I'd really struggled to, to finish my academic life because I got a bit distracted by my sport. Mm. So I kind of wanted to finish that. And I and I sort of almost needed, um, I just needed a, a sort of mental shift away from the, especially the London Olympics. It was, it was, <laughs> it went on for months afterwards, you know, the, the, the celebrations and the parades and all the things that can follow. Um, and I think when you're in the home nation that has enjoyed a successful game, you know, you get, you, you carried along in that way for a very long time. So I think 2013, I needed almost just for sanity to feel it had changed and moved on. And I wanted to do something a bit differently. So I, I wasn't part of the team and obviously coming into the 2013 year and I went to finish my PhD. And then I remember getting to the summer and speaking to our team manager who knew I was taking a bit of time off and said, you know, do you want to come back? And I was like, I'm not really ready yet. That first year flew by, and I thought I, I don't I'm not sure because I know it's a, I don't think it's a thing you should sort of take on half-heartedly. You know I think it is just to the respect to your coaches and your team. You need to give everything to if you're going to give it. And I wasn't ready to in end of 2013. Um, so then I I sort of did some stuff for the BBC and I was you know being part of the commentary. So I knew what was going on 2013 2014. I just wasn't part of the team. And then um, I had thought. I generally thought I will find something in this time that will pull me towards it. I kind of wanted to, I wanted to find the next thing in my life, the next challenge, the next passion away from rowing. And I probably spent two years looking and not finding anything. <laughs> and I sort of did, I did struggle with it a bit. Like why, what's wrong and what am I doing? And what have I not tried enough or whatever? And I thought of all things, of all things I could potentially do. And I did have options. You know, the one thing that still excites me, the one thing that still interests me, the one thing that still has the what if was going back in a boat. And I did have to really be honest with myself and ask why and ask um, why I would do it. And a lot of, because not many, but a few people were who knew I was considering it 
warned against it and saying, look, you've had the most incredible career to London. It is the fairy tale journey. By finishing there, you finish the perfect story. And why would you ever go on beyond the end of that perfect story? And uh, I spoke to a few other people and I suppose that I think it's very personal. It's a very, very personal decision. And I remember speaking to our coach at one point and I was saying, some people are thinking this and some people are th- thinking that. And he said, look, but, but you're the only one who is in your shoes, in your mind, who knows why and what you'd be thinking about. And my biggest thing was I didn't want to live with regret. I really, I'd rather take something on and even fail dramatically badly at it. But to know I tried it and did it and I got an answer. And I think the biggest thing which made me swing towards doing it was one that I still felt I could be better and still would enjoy it. But two, if I didn't, I feel I'd really have struggled with it. I wonder what would have happened if I'd done Rio. So I I decided I'd rather take the risk of doing it and whatever happening than almost backing away and avoiding finding out. And I remember when I went public that I was going back, uh, I got a really lovely message from Anna who'd retired, like I said, after 2012. And she just sort of said, I'm really proud that you're not trying to live your life as if it's the perfect story that should have sort of clear endings. You're living your life because it's your life and you should mm-hmm. be doing whatever you want to do with it. And it was a real kind of, again, it's that you don't want to get in a position you are not taking chances or taking risks because what if it goes wrong or what if I ruin this story? And it, and it, and I remember someone saying to me, um, if you go on and Rio's bad for you, you'll almost, you'll have spoiled London. You'll have you know, ruined London. And I remember thinking a bit like we've just talked about, London to me is so vivid and so special and whatever happens in my life, no one, no one, no one can ever take that away from me. I can never ruin yes. London. London is sort of set in stone now. So I've always had that. So yes, yeah, so I went back. Um, and I'll be honest, it was, I knew it'd be hard, but it was a lot harder than I ever, ever imagined. Um, physically and mentally, um, because physically, because I'd had two years out and I hadn't actually done a lot in those two years. So I really had to, you know, it was really hard to get myself back to where I needed to get to. But also mentally, because although I was, I knew it, in my rational mind, I was always going to be behind where I left off in London kind of mentally and emotionally as an athlete, you, you, you know, I still had the same standards for myself. I still wanted to be as good as I was. I still didn't like admitting that even two years away that I wasn't as good as I used to be or that I shouldn't be. So I kind of gave myself a really hard time um, when I sort of struggled in that first year to get back to where I needed to get to. Uh, but it was, again, annoyingly, I seemed to want a challenge in my life. And, it, and it, I'd, I'd give myself the biggest challenge of at my age and having two years out, it was going to be tough. Um, and obviously not, not being an obvious person to row with in the same way when Anna was sort of there for me in, in 2010 onwards. Um, so it was tough and it, and I, and it was, you know, we, like we're saying that I had the dream run into London where every race we did, we won and every race we were getting better and every, we had so much confidence and so much experience and expectation. Rio was almost the exact opposite in that you know, I rode with another great, great, great rowing partner and Vicky Thorny, but we didn't win anything sort of really together. We had a lot of, you know, highs and lows. We we didn't compete much in the Olympic year itself. Uh, we were very late to be selected um, for the team. We kind of, for a while, thought we wouldn't be selected for the team. You know, we kind of, 
we came into the Rio Games almost with nothing, nothing behind us, no real success, experience, confidence. Um, so it was a very, very, very different challenge in a very different way. And it came down to rather than London or Beijing, you know, the, the final event of an amazing four-year lead-up to it, Rio was almost like we've just almost Rio. The Olympics itself became a very separate thing. It wasn't kind of off the back of the previous few years. It was almost like we've got this one massive regatta that we can just go out and get right. You know, that's the one challenge we have. Um, and and you know, luckily we performed the best of anything we'd ever rode together yeah. at the Olympics, which is what you hope for. Um, but there was just no, there was much more doubt of whether or not we could pull that one off. So in a way of all the Olympic medals, it was the most unlikely <laughs> and the hardest one. Um, and although it was, you know, I was the most experienced I'd ever been at that point, it was still the hardest medal to win over them all. Yes. And I'm, I'm really glad you said that because I, uh, watching you race in Rio and watching the bulldog, um, it was definitely, it, it looked like, especially, I mean, we chatted to Vicky and it, it seemed like it was, again, it became um, similar to when you rode with Catfish, the two of you, it seemed like it was a, a very much a personal endeavor for the two of you going to Rio and it was a real fight to put yourself there. And I think out of all the races that, you know, we've spoken about, when we talk about rising to the occasion, it definitely seems like you and Vicky definitely rose to the occasion in Rio. I mean, even throughout all the races we've spoken about, um, you guys found fantastic form in Rio, and the race that you guys had in Rio was amazing. Um, and that sort of brings us towards the end of the interview, and we we have a set of questions called the Quick Fire Questions where you ask every single guest on the show, and it always has fantastic um Fantastic answers. And uh, in going into the going into the first one, um, if you could if you could ra- race any boat class at the Olympic Games, what would it be, and uh, and why? Sure, I'm interested for this one. Oh, well, this... yeah, because oh, you've raced a lot. Hard one. You've raced a lot I at have, the games. I've done most of them. Well, this is hard because I kind of want to go to like one of the ones I haven't done. I've done the single or the eight at the games. I'd love to do. I don't know. I suppose I suppose I'd love to race an eight at the games only because <laughs> the fastest, the fastest and shortest race of them all, <laughs> um, and because it's still for many seen as the, the sort of the big event. But in, in all honesty, in my heart of hearts, I only got one race ever to go back and do again. I'd go back to a small boat. I probably would go back to a double because I still feel there's something truly special about a small boat. Mm. So, Amazing. to add on to that that question, because you've raced so many boat classes, which boat class do you find like? So you maybe you're the most natural to to just jump in the double, but which boat class did you race that uh, is you thought is the most tricky, or do you think they all just have their own challenges? I definitely think they've got their own challenges. Um, I I still remember now. Maybe it was because I was new and very inexperienced, sitting, and I should never admit this. The first there are 300 meters of Sydney, so my quad, um, just thinking, genuinely thinking, don't catch crab, don't catch crab. <laughs> um, and, it's, and you know, and you, you, speak to, you speak to any psychologist, it's all positive thinking, positive thinking, never think the negative. But in a quad, you know, you're, ba- you're almost the speed of an eight, um, but you've got no cocks to kind of be in charge of you. And you've, got, you've all got two blades each, and there's eight blades flying around in a very short space. And I think, of all things, 
that always feels a boat that the most could go wrong very quickly. Um, oh. But I do think I do think they've all got their own challenges. Good, good and answer. Then, uh, and, and another addition is um, bow seats or stroke seats, if you had to choose. Oh, oh, my! That's a good question. I um, I definitely start in the bow seat. I love the bow seat. Uh, I have such a, I think the bow seaters are in charge of the world, really. But I would still go back and take the stroke seat for racing. The racing, I always want the stroke seat. The, for me, the stroke seat is a. I remember speaking to Anna because we swapped around in training quite a lot, and she was a brilliant stroke stroke as well. Um, but she was always that I'll give you it for racing. You need to be. You need to be a bit. You know. You need to have that slightly not craziness. Keeps me very clear thinking, but. Um. Yeah, almost. I'll I'll sit in the seat and I'll die if I have to. Which is very very extreme. Mm-hmm. No one's going to die in the stroke seat with a boat. But almost, I will. And going back to that responsibility for other people, I remember loving the stroke seat because I kind of feel in the stroke seat. You you cannot you cannot back down for a split second. Mm-hmm. You know you've got to hit the you've got to hit the rhythm. You've got to hit the timing right, and then you have to be relentless from first stroke to last stroke because people rely on you in that seat. And I, that for me gets a lot out of me. Yeah. But I have to say, having having someone making decisions, and and you know making tactical decisions and bow seat. If you've got a good bow seater, then you can do anything in the world. I reckon. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the the stroke seat. Like, if you're racing in a four and an eight, or I mean, I don't know about the eight, the four, the pair. Like, if you're if you're two men, or the guy behind you, like he starts blowing a little bit. It's like you could still manage to go, but if your stroke man decides that he's he's ticket, then there's some big problems. You're gonna hit a massive puncture there. So that is a good point there. Yeah, um, there's there's definitely then, the the gladiator in the stroke seat like has to you really have to lay it down full on, whereas the the bow seat has to be kind of a little bit in control, have because they have to like make sure that the whole crew is doing the 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 kind of job that they need to be doing so especially in like a pair where, where it's 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 really tight between you um but yeah i'm with you i think uh they both are and if you have a good person that can do the other seat i think that makes it much easier to to do whatever whatever seat that uh, that you're in so the next question is yeah and i i, oh, I go, sorry we're, not, no, no, go no, we're making these, no i'm just gonna say we're not making these very quick at all but that's what i think i love about the and that's why when i try to talk to people who aren't rowers they, they sort of they sort of assume every seat is the same in every boat, and you sort of feel no, every seat is so different. They're all different skills and a different mentality. And you know, I think the crews that work brilliantly is when you when you get the right type of person in the right seat. Because, mm. like you said, the bow seat, you know, is it's got to be clear and really sharp thinking and decisive and you know, open to everything that's happening. And you know, the stroke seat is to have that kind of incredible bravery of just going to the limit and then beyond if need be and never letting it, you know, anyone down for a second. And I, you know, all those, they're all like re- amazing strengths in every seat. And I think one of the big, the best crews I were in, and especially, you know, even coordinates, they all still have important roles. And when people knew what the role of they were in the boat, you feel they bring the best because you suddenly feel I have to deliver this because only I can deliver this in this seat. And that's when I think yes. you get really good stuff out of people. Oh, hundred percent. So, the next question is, if you could choose three people from any time, anywhere in the world to row or race in a, in a quad with, uh, with, who would your three crewmates be? Oh my goodness, this is awful. 
<laughs> yeah, this is, it's actually really, it's, a, it's, it's usually quite a nice question, but I think because you've had like, I don't know, 50 different uh, teammates over the years. So maybe, I don't know, maybe choose people that you, you haven't rode with or, yeah, I don't know, you can, uh, you can go literally anywhere with this, this question. Yeah, you can take any interpretation you want to. Oh my goodness, it's so hard, it's so hard. This is how to turn the rest of the world against me very quickly. <laughs> um, I, I'm going to go for then for three people that I've never rode with, uh, and from not from my country, because then I feel I'm not going to upset anyone, surely. Um, so, oh man. So if, I'm going to go like for back in time, you know, because I think I think there's something about I've got I've got real respect to those amazing, you know, the kind of on the shoulders of giants bit. You kind of go, there's been brilliant people who've gone long before us who actually made mm. real history. Real history. Um, so I would choose uh, different countries. Uh, I think I go Elizabeth Lipa, who she uh, has I think still holds the most the record for the most number of like Olympic gold medals yes. um, in women's rowing and just one, I think went on to become like a colonel in the police force or something as well in Romania. So just, you know, absolute legend and never knew her, never met her. Um, I've been in her presence, but that, you know, I wanted people were like, oh, that's who it is. That's a really um, a good, uh, a good person to put in. I think she has the most medals out of any, any rower ever uh, in total medals. Yeah. I think uh, she has, I think five or four. No, she has four golds or five gold medals. I think equal, I think uh, equal red grade. She has five golds, and then she yeah. has a bunch of other medals as well. Yeah, and she doubled up in the pair of mm. the eight loads and and just won everything. So that would be quite exciting. Um, I'd have to say Catherine Boron because, you know, what Elizabeth, Elizabeth Lipa did in sweet, Boron basically did in sculling, and I raced her time, many times, but never rode with her. Um, and then I think because the you know the time we're in, sadly, when I when I was sort of came into the sport in the, the late nineties, um, and the women's side actually it was it was Canada who was sort of the dominant force, and um, there was a brilliant um, partnership of uh, Kathleen Heddle and Marnie McBean who won the pair in the eight in ninety two and then the uh, the double again in ninety six and won a bronze in the quad. So they just smashed it over two Olympics and Kathleen Hiddle very very recently has passed away and um, far too young sadly uh, and I met Kathleen a couple of times and I remember the first time meeting her and she I was just absolutely in awe of her I mean she's absolutely incredible but she's one of the most modest and humble athletes I've ever met and I remember being introduced to her or, or someone introducing me to her when I was right at the start of my career and she said oh hi I'm Kathleen and I was thinking I know who you are. You're like a legend in our sport. <laughs> and I think it's very, 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 very sad. That she's now no longer with us. But I think one of these people that, not just her results, but the type of person she is, her legacy will go on long into the future. Um, so, yeah, it's sad because, like I said, she's no longer with us. But if I'm allowed to pull anyone together, I'd, I'd have her back for one more row. Sure, really, really good, yeah, uh, good, good choices there. That's definitely uh, uh, a quad to, to, to go in and take on the world, for sure. Um, so the next question is, uh, what is your favorite rowing race that you find yourself watching over and over again? Doesn't have to be one of your own. Yeah, that you <laughs> find yourself watching again oh. and again. 
Oh, do you know what? I'm not, I'm not, I don't watch that many rowing races anymore. Um, <laughs> to be honest. Uh, the ones that, I mean, gosh, the ones that I've watched and well, if I see them, will will always uh, make me smile. It's probably, to be fair, Steve Gould in Sydney um, with him in the four. Because that was just, I, you know, in the end, very close. Quite close than they wanted. Um, but I remember uh, when I first started, when the races we watched thought of was actually the, the 1992 Olympics uh, with the Serral brothers. Again, a British gold medal, I'm afraid. But um, in the Cox pair, and they were racing the Abinelli brothers, and it was, it is, it is it again. I mean, I haven't seen it for a while, but I watched it a while ago, and I hadn't seen it for years before that. And I'd forgotten just how good a race it is, and how close. And and you have to watch the podium afterwards because Gary Herbert, who was Cox, is in tears on the podium. It's always good fun to um, see, see Gary again in tears. But it's yeah. a great race. It's a really great race to watch. Cool. And it's always great and to actually, get a bit of the other one. The other, I, I can't have three now, I'm having three. The, um, the women's single from Sydney is absolutely amazing as well because it is one of the few races that the lead changes a lot of times in that last final bit in Sydney. So, and that's yeah. Carsten um, back on her game. And yeah, that's a great race. Well, we'll put all the, the links for these in the show notes so the, the listeners can uh, go and watch these these amazing races because there's so many out there and it's, it's hard to, to oh, choose. Too many. So the next question is, if you were in charge at World Rowing, what would you change? <laughs> oh, this is a good oh, one. Sorry. I love this, this one. Is how I, oh my goodness, this is how I get in <laughs> Gosh. What would I change? You must have had amazing answers on this one as well. Right? We, yeah. We've Some had brilliant, brilliant ones. I promise you, we've got a notebook. We have a notebook on the most amazing ideas <laughs> on uh, what different things we can change in the, in the sport. What are some of the ideas you've got? So uh, this, a lot of them has got to do with like the spectators and the changing the sport to bring more value to the spectators. So like changing the distances, um, mm. like that's that's been a big area where a lot of people have spoken about. Hey, Lawrence. Yeah, they so like a lot of it is on the racing and and how to make it more more exciting and also on how to bring more value basically to the sport. So a lot of people are like they want more branding, they want more like freedom from uh, from like all these restrictions that we that we have. I love that. If I was still an athlete, I'd probably be doing the same. Um, yeah, I do. I mean, I, I gosh. It's interesting because there's been so many discussions about how to change it. And there's always that amazing thing of, you know, rowing is such a strong tradition. It's a very traditional sport. So how much do you want to mess with it? But I do think, I do think either how we, you know, visually cover it or show it could could be better. Because I don't, I don't think you watch it. I don't think you get enough from what actually is going on mm. <laughs> with your watching from the spectator's point of view. And you're, and I've been in the crowd since, and it's hard waiting, you know, four or five minutes before you even see the, I mean, you've seen the screens um, before you see in front of you. We, You know, we talked about whether it could be moving grandstands and all sorts of things, which would be <laughs> exciting, but probably not the tens of thousands of people. Um, so I do, I, I'm actually quite a fan of the different uh, uh, distances. I think sprint, sprint events would be thrilling. And also the idea, they've talked about for a while about, you know, having to make up, so mixed crews of say coming out of your eight. So if you're in the eight, you also have to do a, a yes. four or a pair or a four or something. 
So you yeah. can have small teams, but actually you mix it up a bit. And I'd actually love to see a, a mixed event going there. Um, mm. mixed, mixed gender, just just again to add a little bit of spice to over sprint distance. Yeah, it's uh, there's there's a lot of cool ideas out there, and I think um, yeah, I think there's there's up there's room to to play. I think in uh, in our sport at the moment. Yeah, and I think that's the big thing is is you know we've got world championships, we've got other events, world cups and stuff. There's places you could try stuff. But um, actually, and uh, then my answer is is usually about the distance and the the the, the spectators. But currently, my my answer is to for world rowing to just please go back to their original website because they've made this new <laughs> website oh, yeah. and it oh it's a disaster for us to to go and go through results that are all there's so many like errors and dead ends on their website that it's uh it's been, it's been a real challenge yeah. so yeah, they, yeah. they still need to optimize it for sure it's making you know, the research a bit harder it's a bit like we were saying sometimes you just need to get the basics right that's the most important yeah. thing and it was Build right yeah. stuff on top it yeah. was amazing <laughs> you could it? literally search anyone see all their res- results go to their racing it was i thought it was so superb and uh now we, we're struggling a bit but so why, why did they shift so, it i'm not sure i think they they obviously gave it quite a visual you can tell they're given it a, a very visual facelift on the website so they made it a bit more current and modern and it's very very pretty but actually the results has now become very difficult to use and the, the links to some of the results so some of the results i could see that you like some of your results from um the 2004 olympiad you'd say you can you you would come first or second and i hit the result page open it up and, and you're not even there's no gb in the race i'm like what what happened there <laughs> but that's just annoying <laughs> it is annoying but um we have to get to the next question and the next one is the one that everyone wants to know about and that one is what is your 2000 meter pb on the urba Oh, it's such a dull question to ask. Uh, mine is thirty. <laughs> oh, that's 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 pretty quick. Six thirty. Well, six thirty. Dead. Oh. Um. Yeah. Well, well, I couldn't do it today. I'll tell you that. But I did do it. I have done it. So I've got the the Ergo yeah. ladder up, so because obviously we asked this question to to all of our um our guests, and you have done so right up there at the top. You are in third place amongst the heavyweight women that we, we, we have 11 uh, heavyweight women that we, we've interviewed and you are just behind. So Kim Brennan was first at a 6.26, then Emma Twig 6.29, and then you, you sit in ahead of uh, Sunita Baspura and uh, Kiri Growler. So, Growler, so pretty, yeah, pretty it's good. A nice gr- it's a nice, it's a nice group to be part of. I'm Definitely. happy that. Okay. Very, very fast group. I'm also interested, when did you actually pull that PB um, throughout the span of your career? Oh, man, that's a good question. I can't even tell you now. Uh, I couldn't tell you. Somewhere in the middle. Mm. I'd have to double check. I honestly can't remember what year it was. And then, so, and how was your, like, how did the strength and stuff change? Like, I mean, by, by Rio, were you, were you still pretty close to, to those uh, kind of numbers or, or was it a bit more technical than physical at the, as you, as your career went on? Yeah, I, I mean, I was, I was 
pretty pleased where I got to. So it, the the physical side still stayed really quite strong. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't quite as top end as it had been, but it wasn't far off. Um, but I think technique always got better. Um, physical side wasn't far off. And then I think, I think, I think what I think is brilliant with experience is you get your tactical understanding and also your kind of your confidence from everything that's gone before you in your career about how to handle situations, you know, handle people, handle everything. I mean, all of that comes into play. So like I said, you know, leading into my final games was probably the hardest challenges I'd had um, kind of on our performance side and also the physical side getting better. But what you lay on top of that is this, the experience you get from having done it in so many different ways and so many highs and lows and so many challenges and so many different people. I think that comes, I mean, that, that is just priceless what experience can bring you as well. So I think when all those factors combine, then, then you're in a pretty good place. Very cool. Very cool. So our last question is if you had to choose a different sport to go to the, the Olympics in, which sport would you choose? <laughs> Uh, if it was the summer games, um, do you know what? I think something like the hundred meter sprint, because you know it's 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 ten seconds. I yeah. mean, you know what it's like over two thousand meters. It's agony. Ten <laughs> seconds. I mean, that can't be too bad. And, and it's the ultimate know, as think, well. Well, it is the ultimate, and it's also in that you know that track and field stadium. There's something you know. I've luckily been as a spectator many times. And, there's something really quite remarkable about, you know, yeah. that. Rowing, rowing's wonderful because when we get great crowds, we get great crowds. And I think the water and everything magnifies sound. But you could never get that full 360 experience that, that you would in the centre of a stadium. Um, if it was a winter games, I think I think something like, you know, the giant slalom or something, something big and fast downhill <laughs> would be fun. Maybe the downhill. Awesome. But if you've seen if you've seen me skiing, you know that's not likely. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, but luckily it's uh, it's all just uh, imaginary and fantasy. And fantasy just fantasy. Yes. So, what would you guys do? What would you guys do at the Olympics if you weren't rowing, Jake? Um, I would a hundred percent do sevens rugby. I think uh, oh, nice. that's. I really enjoyed playing rugby when I was a bit younger. And I think uh, it was my. It would be the only other sport where a big guy with a big engine would be useful. And rowing is one of those sports. If you if you're a big guy and you have a big engine, then you're useful. Usually, you're too big, and then you just yeah. get left behind. But yeah, I would play seven rugby. You, you see, you've gone practical. I haven't even thought if I'd yeah. be good at the hundred meter sprint. No, so I'm with you. I, if I could choose it, if I could choose something, then a hundred percent, I'm going a hundred meter because I feel like that's the. That's the ultimate athlete. If you are fast in a 100-meter sprint, you are the best athlete in, in the whole world at, at anything because that's where you start. You start off in a run and the fast people stay yeah. running and everyone else goes to, to find other sports. But I think yeah, if you had to choose something practically, then I would. I, I always say I would go do uh, the um, uh, tracks, track cycling because I feel there's uh, yeah. a very similar kind of pain and, and threshold to rowing. Um, yeah. I, it's, <laughs> I don't know about that. Yeah, maybe not. I'm now I'm thinking after all my all my chat about, you know, loving team sports as well, maybe I should be doing the relay. Maybe I should do the 100-meter relay mm. with my teammates. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to be the guy that drops the bat in the, well, <laughs> in the relay. Well, well, this is it. You know, I think things can go wrong in a road race, but a lot more can go wrong in a relay race. So, yeah, maybe just Yeah. yeah. So, Definitely. 
I mean, want to finish off and but we, we, we just have to touch on your your life outside of rowing because it looks like you've had some serious academic performances. So amongst all the hundreds of results that you have, you you've performed on the on the academic side and, and your your kind of roles that you've had outside of, of rowing have been really remarkable and amazing. And tell us a bit about like how your, your transition after you finish rowing and, and kind of what you what you are up to now because it's 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 really interesting. Yeah, so I, I mean, I mean, I went to university. I didn't really start rowing properly till I went to university. So I went to university to get a degree, and I thought that would be my future, my life. And I was studying law. Uh, so even when I got into serious levels of rowing, I still loved having something else alongside it. To me, it was always, it was always important to have some sort of part-time study, even when I was competing at, at sort of Olympic level. And I just felt it was good for me. It was good for me to have something else. I did. It was good for me to have a sort of quite a serious but quite a different distraction and, and it was on because it was in in law and criminal law it was um kind of nothing to do with sport it was it was completely different subject matter but still really interesting i really i really think you've got an advantage in life generally if you have if you're passionate about what you do you know i was so lucky i love being an athlete i love competing but i feel passionate in a different way about about law and about justice and about the i worked in there so it was kind of always important to do um, I didn't ever think of myself as particularly academic, if I'm honest, but I could never have got a job and, you know, had a successful career while I was being a successful athlete. So the kind of the academia side meant I could still study and still work in that area without, with, while being very flexible and very part-time. So that really worked for me. And then, so when I thought when I retired, finally, uh, after Rio, that well, I'd probably we, go into the Well, you said you haven't officially be... retired, but... <laughs> Yeah, since Rio, we did to say. No, not officially. <laughs> I know. I actually found a, a letter from our performance director about a year, I think, after Rio, saying we still haven't got your letter you know, of retirement. Can I take you as officially retired? I just didn't reply to it. I thought, <laughs> I, 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 don't, I still don't know if I'm comfortable yet. <laughs> um, <laughs> there's no comeback plan, don't worry. But um, not, So I, I kind of talk about being in retirement, even if I've not actually retired. Uh, so when I left rowing after um, Rio, I did think it would be law, but then I, I, I sort of wasn't sure. I generally didn't have a, a career. I knew I was going to leave, and I knew I'd have a life beyond, and I was really excited about what it could be. And I was very, although I was always going to be sad to stop being an athlete and sad to never compete again at that level, I did it for as long as I could, and I, did, I loved it, and I got everything out of it, and I adored it, and you know, so many benefits. So I sort of was content to move on, but I didn't know what I was moving on to. And I couldn't really, I found it hard to, to define what I wanted to do. And I could tell you a list of what I didn't want to do. And I was really worried about finding, you know, real life or real jobs boring or not stimulating or not. I, what if I wasn't passionate about it? To me, it was really important to be passionate about what I did. Um, and then the role that I'm in currently came up and I applied, but I applied more for the experience. I applied um, because I felt I should, you know, write a CV and I should go through an interview experience. I should get myself mentally in a place where I am, have now accepted I'm going to have a job rather than be an athlete. And I was successful in it. So I, that threw me a little bit because I wasn't really expecting to take on this job. And it's the... It's the it's the chair of UK Sport. So UK Sport is the body, it's a sort of arm's length government and it's the body that does all the investment into our Olympic and Paralympic teams. 
So it means I am very, very much still involved in sport day in, day out. Um, I mean, I love it. It's such a hard job, but it's such a privilege. It is challenging. It's stimulating. Um, you know, only very big problems kind of get get to you at this level. So it's, you know, when any of the sports are um, obviously with the Olympics and the Paralympics being being postponed in 2020, that was, you know, suddenly there's a lot of different work to be doing than we expected to be doing uh, last year. And um, or if any of the sports are in crisis or if there's any kind of issues of integrity or welfare or uh, you know, there's just so many different facets and factors that go into we invest in major events. So, you know, when we're hosting huge international events and in any of the sports as well, we get involved. So there's, it's brilliant. And it's, like I said, it's hard, but it's, it's fabulous. And I get to chair a board and it's decision making and it's future strategy and it's helping to design what the, the future of the Olympic and Paralympic sports should look like in our country. And, um, you know, what's the next, what's the next phase? Where, where should it be? What Im- impact does it have on society? What place should it have in people's lives? Why, how do we still make it relevant in, in the world we live in that's fast changing and fast evolving? And it's, and it's brilliant because I, I think I have gained so much from being an athlete and learned so much um, from sports. And I guess in a way it's, it's sort of giving back in a different way and, and hoping that you know, every future generation of athletes coming in have a better and better experience and, and you know, from being an athlete in this world we're, we're lucky enough to be in, it gives people a brilliant sort of place to go to from here. You know, it's not just while you're an athlete you, you benefit, but actually it makes you a better person while you're being an athlete. And those kind of decisions and, and responsibilities are thrilling and wonderful, but hard. So I love it. I do love it. Definitely. Oh, that's that's really awesome. And you know, I think it's such a fitting place for for you to to kind of take your the the, the next step. And and really, really awesome. And yeah, that's sounds really exciting. And I think that's that's a wrap for for our for our chat. And I think I know we've gone over time. And uh, we just want to say a huge thank you to to you for for giving us a big chunk of of your busy time. And yeah, it's 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 been really really been a pleasure to to chat. Oh, do you know what? It's been a joy. I don't get to talk about my career m- many times these days. So it's been lovely to go a little bit down memory lane and to, I guess, talk, you know, talk a bit more in depth about it. And you guys do a phenomenal job as well as everything else you're doing. You might have to do all this research about me and everyone else you've interviewed. So I just think it's, it's, it's great for ruining to have people like you who are equally passionate about it and want to share the stories behind it. Cause I think the more you... Like every athlete I've ever met, the more you learn about them and, and the whys and the whys and there's so much there that sits behind those results that you often just see from the outside. And it's and I love the fact you guys are taking time to go a bit more in depth about what it all means. It's brilliant. It's yeah, a great for job. sure. And you know what, I think, it, you know, one thing that I find quite frustrating in this day and age is that everyone wants, you know, those, those tiny pockets of instant gratification and, and fast, quick, news and whatnot and I find like with our athletes in the rowing space especially is that we never ever care about the guys that are you know winning medals you never listen to them for more than like five seconds and they hardly get any camera time or any sort of like platform to you know show their personality and show the story and the journey that they've been on and it's actually fantastic to speak to people from all around the world and listen to their, their journeys. I mean, it's a real privilege to be able to listen to you and people from all around the world chat about their successes, you know, things that they haven't done well and whatnot. 
So thanks a yeah, lot for coming I, on to the podcast. I loved it. Loved every minute. Thank you, guys. Yeah, thanks so much. And then I also, I know that I know that you have a podcast. It's, it's called Medals and More. And I encourage all our listeners out there to go and have a listen to. Um, definitely oh. go check that out. Well, I might come back and ask to you guys at some point. We're trying to oh. <laughs> Oh, fantastic! <laughs> yeah. Cool. Are you guys doing? Are you guys doing okay through all this, this mad world we're now living in? Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely uh, flipped it uh, flipped it all on its head. Uh, I can't believe the the last year that we've had, and it's it's definitely affected and changed our our sport quite a quite a bit. So it's different, but yeah, I think we we managing, and you know, luckily we have quite a small team, and it's we're kind of able to to adapt and and change and and fit in with our. Yeah, with all the craziness that uh, that's been going on. You know, I was in um, I was in South Africa in uh, March 2020 on holiday, um, and I remember when I left the UK, I was sort of joking about, ha ha, I know it, and if we don't get back, and it was all very funny because <laughs> it, it it changed so fast. It so really fast changed here. so quickly. It did. And yeah, three, like I remember coming out, and I was in Joburg for a bit, and. Yeah, watching the news and it was all like, oh, you know, really, what is this? And it was all happening elsewhere. And then two and a half weeks later, I was trying to fly back. We literally got to the airport and a flight after flight after flight was just being cancelled. You thought, oh my God, we might. And they, they you know, South Africa, I'd been in Botswana for a bit and we had to race to get back to South Africa because they were shutting the borders in South Africa to, to especially people from the UK because it's starting to pick up here. And so we just got back in time and I never, I left my office in London in on the fourth of March, and I thought I'll be back soon because they closed it. And I and so I left. I left thinking I'd leave them for two and a half weeks. And I've left. <laughs> it will be a year. And I don't know what I left on my desk. I don't know what I left. I know there's some food there. And I, <laughs> I know I'm like. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm, I'm just. I hope there's no bananas because that's gonna be bad news. But you're gonna have like a, a science experiment I mean, <laughs> in your desk there when you get back. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's but my fear. But listen, stay, stay safe. Yeah, we had the same yeah. thing because we were training in Lesotho. Uh, that's where we, we go for our high altitude training. And uh, we also had to really rush back because uh, we were worried we were going to get stuck there um, as yeah. all those borders were getting closed. So, yeah, it's been really, really yeah. crazy. And, you know, we just hopefully everyone kind of stays safe and gets to the gets to the, the, the end of this year in the, in the best possible shape. And, and hopefully we, we have the Olympics and they kind of make a plan to, to allow it to, to run as, as normal as possible. Mm. I know. Definitely. I hope so too. Yeah. It's yeah. been a long time if it, you know, for now, but, and you still want crowds of some variety. You want something going on there. Yeah. Mm, definitely. Well, good luck with all. Yeah. Cool. Thank you Thank again. You very much. And I hope you have a great yeah. day and stay safe. Oh, you too. Nice to catch up finally. Oh, thanks. Bye. Take care. Oh, of course. It's been fantastic. Cheers. Have a good day. Bye. Bye Cheers. Now. Bye. Thanks. Cool. So that's a wrap for our part two of Dame Catherine Granger. That's a wrap for the, the whole episode of hers. And what an epic chat that was. Jake, what is your biggest takeaway? What did you think? You know, I think across the, the whole of her career, there's just an incredible story of you know someone that was immediately really successful in, in the sport, but despite that success, the the challenges that she had to face, and you know the the journey that that put her on was maybe one of the most incredible legacies that you know someone's left in the sport. 
and not just her big results at the Olympics, but the results in between the Olympiads, her time in the skull, her time um, in the quads. It was, you know, that looking at that is a, is a really good telling sign of, you know, why she was so successful and, you know, why uh, she has one of the, the the most successful British rowing athletes out there. So overall, I learned a hell of a lot from uh, chatting to her and big respect. And yeah, I really enjoyed this, uh, this episode. No, for sure. And, you know, when we started the row show, we always would uh, discuss about how every athlete uh, has a huge story behind the medals that they have. And, you know, every uh, a little Olympic medal, you know, you're only watching that final performance, uh, yet there's so much more behind the story. And I think no uh, interview, no episode that we've released comes uh, fulfills that uh, criteria as, as well as, as Catherine did. She really had the most phenomenal story and kind of an unsung one. I haven't seen it around anywhere else. And, you know, I really enjoyed chatting to her. And learn, as you say, we learned so much. So, yeah, I think uh, thanks for listening, guys. And again, share the show. If you want some more rowing content, head over to our Patreon account and support us there. That always allows us to, to help uh, build it up. And for now, we're in Lesotho. We're training flat out, getting ready for hopefully a trip to Lucerne where we get some racing in. And from there, we'll see where the rest of the year takes us. Yeah, for sure. Besides that, I think that's a wrap. Uh, enjoy your week, ladies and gentlemen, and stay strong out there. Stay safe. We're out. Noise. Noise. Yo, that was a big one, dude. That was a massive one. So I literally, I just got a notification telling me my phone is on like 4% battery. Yeah, I saw it came up on my phone. It said Jake's phone is low. <laughs> <laughs> no, dude, that was so good, dude. Oh Shit, my that, God. Was, she, that was a banger. She was, she was a tank. It just spoke really well. And fuck, she was also like, I just found it like really,